Who knows that God has sticky fingers? It's not something we think of, really, as, as God having dirty hands. Or, but his fingerprints are everywhere. And I think he does that on purpose to get us to look. And so before I, before I begin to speak about my topic for today, I, I actually want to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is not the answer. Now I know that sounds a bit heretical to most of us. But the thing is, if we, if we want Jesus to be the answer, some of the answers he gives us we're not going to like. And Jesus never said he was the answer. In fact, he said he was three things. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And the thing is that if you want truth, Jesus is the person to go to get it. Now that doesn't mean that you'll get all the answers to your questions. But the answers he gives you will be the truth that you need to know. We often find ourselves lost in life, looking for answers. But Jesus said, I am the way. Which means that he is with us on our journey. He is showing us the way. He promises to be with us. Do you know why Jesus died at 33? So that he couldn't be compared to Douglas Adams. He wasn't 42. Because 42 is the answer to life, the universe and everything. You see, Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to be the truth. He came to show us the way and he came to give us life. And he says in his word, he came to give us life and life in abundance. And so sometimes I think when it comes to Jesus, we need to, we need to turn our thinking around a bit. I think as Christians, we're all too comfortable to look into people's lives and say, Jesus is the answer. He's not. I've asked Jesus lots of things and got absolutely nothing back. No answer. But I know that anything he tells me is the truth. I know that as I search for the answers, he's with me along the way. And I know that even though I don't have all the answers, that he has brought abundant life into my life. The only way that happens is actually if we invite him to be part of that life. So before I, I preach anything, before I challenge you with the word of God, I want you to take a moment, whether you're here in person or whether you're online, because I believe that if you make a decision to accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, what I say to you this morning will become powerful and life-changing in your life. But Jesus will never force that truth, that way, and that life onto you. We actually have to invite him in and say, I want you, Jesus, to be my truth, my way, my life. And so if you're online, you can do that by pressing the raised hand button in the chat. A member of our team will be able to speak with you privately and they will encourage you and show you how you can actually start moving in your life for a life of abundance with Jesus showing you the way and the truth that resides in him becomes part of your life. If you're here this morning, 
the end of the service, uh, I will be up the front and I would love to talk with you, pray with you, and encourage you into a life where Jesus is the Lord and Saviour of your life. Not the answer, but the way, the truth, and the life. Will you do that for me this morning? So let me tell you, the Word of God will become alive and fresh if you're prepared to accept those truths into your life. And guess what? You may not even fall asleep when I'm preaching. Thanks, George. That's great. You can take a seat. Do you know what would happen if you laid all the people who fell asleep during sermons end to end? They'd be a lot more comfortable. Oh, come back. Don't you love facial recognition? Who are you, it says. I don't really need this. I thought that I would actually ad-lib everything this morning and just pretend that I was reading it off here so that you'd feel more comfortable and more confident with what I was saying. But it's just blank. I'm not actually reading anything off here. I've got no notes, no scriptures. So the fact that I'm looking down at it, it's just a trick I use. I've got a bridge I can sell you as well, by the way. We discussed, who remembers, we discussed last week that as a community, we should strive for certain qualities that we, we saw were valued by the fledgling church in the book of Acts. And the things that, that uh, indicate a, a healthy faith community are unity, generosity, and risk-taking. And so I don't want to talk about unity this morning or generosity. I want to talk about risk-taking. In fact, I want, I want us to be encouraged in the area of community risk. Who feels confident? Who feels excited about the idea? The first question on everybody's lips is, what on earth does he mean by community risk? Is this something to do with the pandemic? Are we, are we in danger here? Or am I going to be asked to do something that takes me out of my comfort zone? Possibly. I think the most common picture that springs to mind when we think of a, a risk-taking church is a church that becomes well-known for its stance on something that it boldly espouses. You get churches who are famous for sending missionaries to China. That's their whole mission. They, they raise money, they, they train people, and they send them with Bibles across the border into China to spread the Word of God. You think, wow, risk-taking church. You have churches that contribute to disaster relief. They buy, you know, you've heard of mercy ships. They, they, they provide uh, food and medical aid wherever uh, disasters happen all across the world. It, it, they take risks with personnel going into war zones. They have to raise lots of money to get medical supplies. It's a risk-taking venture. Running a soup kitchen. You get... Churches who are famous for going into poor uh, and um, ghetto areas in, in countries and helping the poor by running a soup kitchen. You know, they get regularly raided by people with knives, guns, drugs, all sorts of different things. It's, it's a risk that they take. You've got some churches that specialise in drug rehabilitation programmes, become famous for that. Or you get other churches who are politically vocal and demonstrative 
and they're out there on the front line taking a risk in voicing their opinions. These are all, these are all activities that are indeed, indeed bold and often risky financially or reputation-wise or even just with resources, trying to have, find the resources that enable you to do what you feel you're called to take a risk with. But the interesting thing is I don't believe that any of those things are the type of risk that is an indicator of community health. We have a representative example, representative example of what I think community risk is all about in Exodus 20. Who's, who knows the story of the Exodus? Short one, uh, Moses rescues people out of Egypt, Pharaoh's uh, chariots get trashed, they head to the promised land and take a wrong way in the desert for 40 years. Okay, so the story here is basically Moses rescues God's people and the reason that he actually convinces them to leave Egypt is twofold. He promises them that God has a promised land for them. So there's a land that is for them, that God has prepared for them, that they are going to move into and everything is going to be fabulous. And the second promise is that on the way, God wants to meet with you guys. A place called Mount Sinai, we're going to get together and you, you and God are going to meet. Who'd be excited? I mean, come on, this is, this is absolute. And if you read the account, it's, it's quite an interesting scenario when they get there. And in fact, in verse 18 in Exodus 20, they're all there. They're looking at the mountain that says, when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, uh, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God directly speak to us, otherwise we'll die. <laughs> you sort of think, where do they get that from? Now, have you heard that terminology before? Way, way back in the beginning, there's that book called Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God warned him, this is Adam he's talking to, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, can you see how generations later the Israelites have twisted this? They've seen something which they fear. They've been asked to take a risk to come into the very presence of Yahweh. And they've suddenly thought, God can be a bit um, stroppy sometimes. Remember that tree? He said if they ate of it, they'd die. And here he is right now, and I, I think we could die. So let's, let's, just, let's just not ask God. Let's just say, look, if we go any further, we're going to die. And so they do exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but in reverse. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and took their destiny into their own hands. They decided that they would choose what was right and what was wrong and leave God out of it. And here, again, they've chosen to pretend that God has said, well, you're going to die. So, okay, God, we're not, we're not going to enter into that. We're going to obey what you said, even though you haven't said it. And so we're not going to come into your presence. We're actually going to appoint Moses, him, him, kill him, kill him. He can go into your presence and we will... Let Moses speak for you, and it says, and we will listen. They lied. 
I mean, a, a chapter, a chapter later, there's this golden calf thing. You've all read the story? Yeah. They were just not prepared to take the risk to connect with God. And I believe that that is the one risk, one of the most important risks that we as a church can take. And that is the risk of having conversations with God rather than monologues. Because you see, that, that community there decided they weren't going to talk to God. They were going to appoint Moses. Moses was going to talk. They were going to listen. And we know how well that worked. And I believe the risk they needed to have taken was to actually come into God's presence so that they could converse with God. They could speak to God. God could speak into their lives. And I believe the health of a faith community is related to the robust conversations around our differences and our similarities rather than the positions that we inevitably take which brook no argument or discussion. This is my stance. You can break your arguments against me. I'm not moving. I'm a rock of unavailable comment. People do that. They decide this is, this is what I stand for and I'm not changing my mind. Even though your argument may be very good, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing because you know, I, I believe that this is what Moses has said to me. So because Moses said it, I'm not going to have a conversation with God, I'm not going to have a conversation with you. But it's interesting because a church, I don't know whether you've noticed this, a church is a, a very heterogeneous group of people. There are people at different spiritual levels. There are some people who come in and they've been saved for a day. There are some people who've been saved all their life and they're 80 and they have a wealth of knowledge and quite a different perspective on spiritual things. There are people who come in with different backgrounds. Not everybody's like me. And I hate to tell you, not everybody's like you either. And so we come from different backgrounds. We have different concepts of God. You know, some people come from a church background. It may be a Catholic background or an Anglican background or a Pentecostal background. They have, or they may come from an atheist background. They, may, they have completely different concepts of God. They can wander into church with this idea that God is like Star Wars, the force. Because that's the, their only experience of spiritual stuff has been watching Star Wars, which is, you know, to a lot of people, it's like, what's wrong with that? Surely that's, that's real. And so the idea that God is a person is quite frightening because it's, it's much easier to believe in a force because it doesn't talk back and you have no personal responsibility to it. And there are people who come from different ethical mindsets. And so one of the, I don't know whether you've noticed this, one of the most common criticisms of churches is that they're full of hypocrites. And yet I believe... And I would suggest to you that this is one of the risks that we're called to outwork as the body of Christ, to transition believers from just knowing what they believe to actually doing and living what they believe. Yeah. And so a church community that does not love and support its hypocrites and disciple them is failing badly in its mission. Because when people say that, I think, well, where else have they got to go? <laughs> I mean... We're on a, a path here. We're not, we're not a pot that everybody, you put, we all get pickled at the same time. <laughs> we're, not, we're not, if you cut us open, we're not all exactly the same in time. We're not the, in the same place on our journey. We're not heading on precisely the same path. 
And so there are differences. And we have a choice when there are differences. We can either have a conversation about them and accept them and work towards a common goal, or we can draw a line and say, well, I'm not crossing that. You're different, you stay there, I'm different, I'm staying here, and I'm never going to talk to you about it because you're different. And you're a hypocrite. (laughs) Oops, that makes me one too. So I believe it's the inability to have such conversations that has resulted in a couple of trends which can destroy communities if not recognised and addressed. And these are covered very eloquently and I'm not going to go through them in great depth because uh, J. John, who, who knows Canon J. John, he's done a great job in a couple of his recent blogs which I heartily recommend you, you read. And they address a couple of things. The first one I've called smorgasbord Christianity. Don't look that up because he calls it buffet Christianity. But I thought smorgasbord was more Australian. And so I just want to quote a couple of paragraphs from his blog on on, uh, smorgasbord Christianity. He says, Today we live in a consumer age where the right of an individual to choose is felt to be unchallengeable and it's unsurprising that this attitude has slid over into matters of faith. The result is a demand for a smorgasbord Christianity in which the believer can choose or reject what's on offer as the fancy takes them. It's a restless, selective approach to scripture and Christian truth that rejects traditional certainties, shuns hard answers and prizes breadth and novelty. And I think it's been encouraged over the last two years as lockdown churchgoers found themselves browsing through an online supermarket of Christianity overflowing with an alluring range of services and theologies. In smorgasbord Christianity, there's a hunger for the tasty, the eye-catching, the upbeat, the affirmative and the non-judgmental. It knows what it likes and it knows what it doesn't. Smorgasbord Christianity rejects certainty, especially when it makes demands or challenges. It has absorbed the spirit of postmodernism, where the truth of a statement lies not in what the author says, but what the hearer or reader thinks it says. Read the rest. It's very illuminating. And so he, he goes on to say that the, the other thing that has afflicted the church is something called ecclesiastical polygamy. And he uses the word polygamy uh, on purpose. Um, and he says, during the pandemic, we've seen two different ways in which digital church has been used. While many of us have taken the opportunity to engage in some harmless curiosity about what happens in other churches, Others have found themselves becoming committed to one or more digital versions of Saint Elsewhere. The result is what I call ecclesiastical polygamy. And the word polygamy is deliberate. Churches are not simply associations or clubs, but local expressions of the profound spiritual bonds between those whom Christ has made his brothers and sisters in God. And we are family, and as such we are to take our family relationships seriously. Yet for many people, the pandemic has weakened their commitment to their local church so that faced with other numerous options online, their loyalty now lies elsewhere. The situation where many who were once faithful to a single local church now find themselves with a divided church loyalty troubles me greatly. All Christians 
should be deeply committed to attending a local church as far as it is possible. I view all good resources online as add-ons. The local church is the Sunday roast with all the accompaniments. Online is just the gravy, red currant jelly and mint sauce. If you need a little more gravy, go online, but make sure you've had your Sunday roast at your local church. And so I think these are, these are issues that we, we face, but issues which we often either sweep under the carpet, ignore or vilify. And I believe that a faith com- community that is committed to risk is one that encourages conversations about our beliefs rather than people taking unassailable positions that alienate those around them unless they're in complete agreement. Because we're not called to agree on everything. We're actually called to be in unity. I don't agree with Barry on everything. <laughs> I shouldn't see this, say this from the stage because I haven't actually told him that. <laughs> but I also happen to know, and Barry hasn't confessed this either, he doesn't agree with me on everything. And I know that's heretical and we should cast him out. But um, the, the thing is that the gospel... My, either, and uh, this, this isn't my quote, this, this was from one of, I think, uh, Laurie Staples, one of our pastors many years ago. He said, the gospel either makes us sad, mad or glad. And he said, it doesn't pull any punches with that. And it's, and it's epitomized in that story in Luke 18, 22 of the, the rich young ruler. And Jesus, he says, you know, teacher, what, what do I have to do? And he says, well, I'll do these commands. He says, I'll follow all those commandments. He says, in that case, Sell everything you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he was very rich. But you notice the following verse as he walks away, Jesus doesn't say, only kidding, 80%. 60%, you only have to give a half. 40%, come on, come back. 20%, come on. He, do, he doesn't compromise on that. Jesus wants our life. He doesn't want 80% of it. He doesn't want 20% of it. He is the way, the truth, not the half-truth. Not the slightly sliding scale truth. Not the, oh, this is unpopular in today's society, not quite so truthful. He is the truth. But that doesn't mean the truth isn't above discussion. That doesn't mean that the truth isn't hard for people to come to grips with sometimes and that we shouldn't discuss the problems that we have. The interesting thing is, and J. John says this, once people were embarrassed about their doubts, now they're embarrassed about their beliefs. Perhaps we should heed the Romans. The the Romans? Let's heed the Romans. (laughs) What have the Romans ever done for us? The words of the book of Romans, chapter 14, and verse 17, says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. I notice he puts that word try in there. I suspect that means because sometimes we don't get it right. 
But it brings up an interesting point. And I want to leave you with this. We're often concerned whether our church activity pleases us, whether it would be acceptable to our friends that, you know, Pastor Vicky says that we should invite to church or, or dinner party, or even whether it would be embarrassing to bring our boss to church. And we worry about these things. We look at our, our church community and we say, is it up to scratch? You know, am I happy with what's going on? Would, would, am I embarrassed to bring my family here because, you know, Kirsty wears ripped jeans on stage occasionally. And, you know, not today, no. But I couldn't think of anything else to criticise. Her mask has got advertising on it. It's against the laws of Wimbledon. Whatever. But one question I've found that we don't often ask. In fact, we avoid. And that question is, does what we do please God? Because I don't know about you, but I think that's probably the most important question that we can ask. So I'll leave you with that. Let's, not, let's be risk takers and have the conversations that we need to actually move us forward. So that we work not necessarily in agreement, but as Paul says, aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Doesn't mean we have to agree on absolutely everything. Don't you agree? <laughs> Thanks.